We're going to read consecutively through Luke's Gospel and we're beginning at chapter 22 and verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you're the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me, and if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you're right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, he replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, 
daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren woman, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and even the rulers sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was a a written notice above him which read, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Heavenly Father, we just sung about looking upon the cross and reflecting on its meaning for our lives. And we just heard the words which recount the moment when the Lord Jesus died upon the cross. And I pray that now as we spend a few moments thinking about the last words that he said before he died, that you would by your spirit just bring afresh to our hearts, minds and lives the truths of what Jesus accomplished for us that day, for what it's done for each one of us, for what it means for life in this world and the world to come, for the way it changes everything. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask you this morning what makes you feel safe and secure. What is it in life that makes you feel safe and secure? And I acknowledge that although um, some of us are more nervous and worried by nature, 
the uncertainties and dangers of life affect all of us at different times and in different ways. So I ask you again, what makes you feel especially safe and secure? Uh, for some of us it's money, the thought that we can, uh, we can sort things out if, if they go wrong because we've got the cash to be able to spend. It could be a particular person. If they're with you, you feel good. It could be a location. If you're in that particular place, you feel better and more safe. It could be a, a time of the day. If it's light, then things seem better. It could be a certain kind of music that's playing or if you're carrying a certain kind of object. But the real reality is that none of those things can keep us perfectly safe in this world or the next. Uh, I think it's probably the earthquakes that showed us more than anything else that it doesn't matter who's with us or where we are or what time of day it is or what we're carrying, nothing can guarantee our safety or security. Being fit doesn't protect us. Being young doesn't assure us. Being careful doesn't inoculate us. Being wise doesn't guarantee anything. Being safe and secure is an elusive if not impossible, task in this world. And today I'd like us to think about that, that truth, as we examine one of the sayings of Jesus on the cross. At these Good Friday services at St Stephen's, that's what we do, uh, we always look at one of the sayings that Jesus spoke while he was hanging on the cross. When you read through the four Gospels, we know that Jesus spoke seven times, seven utterances, and today we're looking at his last words, the reading that uh, we just heard from Pete where we see Jesus almost pray, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And there's three things I want us to see from these words that Jesus said. Two of them are how this prayer, because it was really a prayer, wasn't it? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Two of them are how this prayer was not what Jesus had just been experiencing. And then the third thing I want us to see is what he meant by these words. So two are what, to show that this is not what he'd been experiencing and then I hope you've all enjoyed morning tea. Uh, and then we'll think about what he means by it. The first way this prayer, Father into your hands I commit my spirit, was not his recent experience was because in effect he'd been in the hands of people. And think about what that had meant for Jesus Christ. This is Jesus not having any safety or security in this world. Think of the physical pain that Jesus went through in the last couple of days of his life. He was whipped and he was beaten. Thorns one and a half inches long were pressed into his head and then he was made to stagger up to Golgotha with the cross on his back. Nails were driven into his wrists and into his feet. Then the thud and the jarring of every bone in his body as the cross was raised and rammed into a hole in the ground. And then the further agony, physically, as he hung gasping for breath and in terrible pain dying. The Romans knew how to hurt people. But the physical pain wasn't the end of it for Jesus. There was the emotional and mental pain. There was the shame, the degradation, the humiliation. And remember, this is the Son of God who's done nothing wrong. And yet he was betrayed by a close companion. Some of you will know the pain of being betrayed by someone that you love. He was arrested. He was falsely accused. Again, some of us know how painful it is to be falsely accused. He was jeered at, spat at, mocked, ridiculed. He had his closest friends turn on him the moment he needed them most. And remember, he's the one who's created people. He's the one who's come down to save people and they're deserting him, they're crucifying him and some of them are loving it as they do it. 
He was in the hands of people. And this is what happened. And so his prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, was not his experience at that time on the cross because in a sense he was in the hands of people, not safe, not secure, in the hands of human beings. But the second way you can realise that his prayer was not his experience as he was about to die was for the last three hours as he hung upon the cross, he he was not in one sense in his father's hands. Not only was he in the hands of people as he hung on the cross, he was not in one sense in the hands of his father. What do do I mean by that? Let me explain. The real agony that Jesus went through on the cross is not actually what he experienced physically or emotionally. Uh, That's that's why I don't watch many of the movies to do with Jesus on the cross because that's what they play up, the physical pain and suffering that he went through. But the real pain and agony that the Lord Jesus went through was spiritually. We're told in verse 44 that at the sixth hour, after Jesus had been on the cross for some time, something changed. Darkness came over the whole land. For three hours, the sun stopped shining. And this is signifying symbolically the beginning of the real pain and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross because now he begins to suffer not human punishment, but God's. That's what the darkness symbolised. At noon on that first Good Friday... God pours out his wrath and anger at sin on Jesus. Jesus becomes the Lamb of God that he was called right at the beginning of his ministry by John the Baptist. He becomes the sacrifice for us, the one who takes our place. Jesus takes our place and receives what we should have. We will never know what that was like for the Lord Jesus. We will never fully understand what he took for us. But Jesus knew in advance what he was going to do. This is how great Jesus is. Do you remember the night before? Some of us, there were nearly 50 of us last night in the library going through the Monday Thursday service. And what we do in that service is a prequel to here. Here we've read through the account of Jesus on the last day on Good Friday as he died. Last night we read the account of, his, of him the night before. And we saw that at the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his death, he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. What did he mean, take this cup from me? When you read through the Old Testament, the cup is used as an image or a symbol of two things. One, God's blessing. One, God's wrath. doesn't make any sense if he was talking about God's blessing. Jesus knew what he was about to do the next day and he prays, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He knew he was going to take the wrath of God, yet not my will, but your will be done. He knew what he was facing. He knew what the cost was. And then on the cross at the end of the darkness, he uttered the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd taken the wrath and anger of the Lord. I can't imagine anything more heart-wrenching than that cry. On top of what he's going through being in people's hands, for the first time in eternity, he was not in his father's hands in the same way either. But then do you notice what happens in Luke's Gospel? The whole focus of the reading has been on Jesus, on one particular place and time and man and on what's going on there. Jesus dying on the cross. 
But in verse 44, but, but something else happens here. Jesus is on the cross dying. In verse 44 we're told the darkness comes over the whole land for three hours, but then we're told about something that happens miles away. Do you see that? Why? Why are we being told about that? The end of verse 45 tells us the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Now the temple is miles away from where Jesus is, is dying, so why are we suddenly being told of something else happening miles away from Jesus dying? Why does the story of Jesus dying on the cross suddenly kind of move camera to an incident that happens many miles away from where Jesus was dying? Well, the curtain in the temple had a very important function. The curtain in the temple was as thick as the span of a man's hand, so this is a serious curtain. And it was a serious curtain because it was to block the way for people to go into one particular room in the temple, the Holy of Holies, the room where God symbolically dwelt with his people. And so the curtain was the sign, don't enter here. The the curtain was the sign that sinful people can't come before a holy God. It's not safe. It's not secure. Being near God is dangerous for people like you and I. So do you see what happens now symbolically? After Jesus has been on the cross, after he's taken the wrath of God, after he's taken our place, the curtain is torn from top to bottom a symbol that it's God from on high who's tearing it. And the way is now open for us to come before God. It's now safe to approach him. It's now with safety and security we can come into the presence of God because the way's been opened by Jesus on the cross. More than that, the New Testament teaches, actually, it's not just that we, you and I can approach him. He, can, he comes and he lives within us. As human beings. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. That's how perfect our relationship is with God because it's how perfect what Jesus achieved for us on the cross is. And then after the temple curtain is ripped, Jesus is able to say his final words before his death. And you notice they weren't a whisper. They weren't a, a kind of last gasp. Luke tells us he cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. Because now everything's different. Before he was in the hands of people and he'd been out of his father's hands, now everything's changed. Notice it's father again now. When he was taking the punishment for it, it was, was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, once again and once for always, it's father. And now he's no longer in people's hands. He's no longer out of his father's hands. He commits himself back into the hands of of the one that he's been working with through this whole thing. Because it's been the love of God. We talk about the wrath of God and effect on the cross, and it is, but it's the love of God, Father, Son and Spirit, that's motivating everything that goes on here. And what I want to encourage you this morning is that now because of what Jesus has done, we too can commit ourselves into the hands of our Heavenly Father. If you don't remember anything else from this morning, remember that. You are in the hands of your heavenly Father if you trust in what Jesus did on the cross. Hands that never drop, hands that never let slip, hands that cannot be pried open by anyone or anything else, hands that will carry you and I through to be with him if we trust in the Son who's rescued us. There is nothing else in this world that you can have that truly provides safety and security. Some things can make you feel better, but it's always temporarily, it's always imperfectly. None of them are full or complete except being in the hands of your Father.
What Jesus did on the first Good Friday is the thing that allows us to be in the Father's hands. That's why the cross is the symbol of the Christian faith, because it wasn't the unfortunate end at the, you know, of a promising career of Jesus. It wasn't loss or failure. This is where the power, the glory, the grace and the love of God is seen most powerfully, in the cross. What was once not safe or secure for us has been changed completely. The curtain has been torn so that we can come before the God that it used to be dangerous to be in the presence of and we can not only come before him, we can call him Father and we can rest in his hands and we can trust him with everything. And because it's based on what Jesus has done, not what you or I have done, we can be confident in it because we can't muck it up. We can't lose it or anything else. Jesus has done it for us. God is holding you. He's holding me. So we're good. No matter what life throws at you, I want you to remember that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, you have God as your father, you have Jesus as your brother, and you have heaven as your true home. That is the good news that Jesus won for us on the Good Friday. As Jesus finished his work on the cross, he was able to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And now because of what he's done, you and I can pray the same. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask Margot to come and uh, uh, sing to us. Let me pray. Father, forgive us for those times when we shamefully forget the extent of what you went through on that first Good Friday for us. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, an incredible, scandalous love that went to such depths, such extent to save us. We thank you that we can now not only come into your presence but have you live within us. We thank you that we can now not only know you as the sovereign God of all things but know you as our heavenly Father in whose hands we rest. We thank you that you are our Father. The Lord Jesus is our brother and you will take us one day to be in our true home with you. Father, we thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.